Hey everyone and welcome to the Sunny Go One Piece podcast. On this episode we're going to talk about anime episodes 171 through 173 which will cover manga chapters 260 to 264. And continuing on with the Upper Yard Survival game, we get some more matchups as more combatants fall to NL and with him starting to make his moves. I personally really like these episodes. More so, actually, I like Chopper's episode here where he fights against Giratsu. I think that's one of his best one-on-one fights, so I'm really excited to talk about that one. But before that, let's get into the synopsis. So NL's survival game continues as we get more one-on-one encounters between the Shandians, Straw Hats, and NL's Shinpei. Luffy takes on Wiper while Chopper ends up taking on Gedats by himself. Nami and Gunfall must defend Sanji and Usopp from Hotori and Kotori who are seeking revenge for defeating their brother Satori. And Robin discovers some interesting things about the ruins in the upper yard but is interrupted by Yama, the Shinbei commander. Alright, so differences. So there are a handful of differences between the anime and the manga this time around. The first one comes earlier on after Sanji gets electrocuted. In the anime, you actually see Usopp kind of freaked out and also trying to stand up to NL, although he's using his normal, like, lying bluff. And and then that's when NL gets annoyed with Usopp and electrocutes him. But in the manga, this actually never happens. And really, Usopp actually gets uh, fried as he's screaming about Sanji when he's so holding him on the, on the deck of the of the Going Merry. And so he never actually gets up in the manga and confronts Enel. Enel just comes over and just electrocutes him because he's tired of Usopp screaming. Which I feel like that may be some people's, like, some fans, like, observations of the situation. It's like, shut up, Usopp. But I don't personally, I don't know. I, I think one way or the other is fine with me. I don't think I have a preference over the other. I think in the anime, the way they did it, it gives Usopp a little bit more redeeming quality as he's kind of standing up to Enel, which is an absurd thing to do for Usopp. So I do kind of like that. But I also like that Usopp kind of stays more true to his character while also making Enel a little bit more menacing as he pretty much just attacks Usopp almost unprovoked. We also get a little bit of scene shuffling between Robin finding the ruins and running into Yama. This is all shown a lot later in the in, and in the anime where it should be somewhere in episode 171 it's actually pushed to the beginning of 172 and so they kind of rearrange that I mean it's not a really big change but you do kind of see the timing of that being changed up and then speaking of changing things up with the sequence of Robin's scenes Chopper's fight in the anime is interrupted a little bit with Robin's fight with Yama as well as seeing Luffy wandering inside his quote-unquote cave and again, I I hate how they do this in the anime, how they keep like intercutting things when in the manga, it's just one long sequence where, cause like I, you want to see an entire fight from beginning to end without being interrupted. And for some reason, the, the anime seems to feel the need to keep intercutting things that aren't necessarily the way it's shown in the manga. And it, it's not like it makes the pace any better. It makes it worse, arguably. And so this change really annoys me. A couple kind of fun additions, though, is one, we actually get to see Aisa getting saved by Konis and Pagaya, whereas in the manga, we don't see this at all. And it actually already catches up with them on their way to the Going Merry with already Aisa aboard their ship. And we don't actually get to see how they how they ran into each other. And she's just magically with them. They kind of they kind of sort of explain it away in, in the next few scenes uh, in the manga. But 
I like that they actually showed how they, they saved her. And so this is a nice addition to the anime. And similarly, after Gunfo leaves Nami, there's an added line after that long pause where she's crying over the fact that Gunfo is leaving her alone. And in, in, in the manga, it actually just has that long pause. But then it, and then Nami just goes on and starts dragging Usopp and Sanji to treat them. But in the anime, you see that long pause and then she yells out, I'm going to cry. <laughs> and so that's not in the manga. And I, I thought that was a pretty funny addition as well. So that does it for the differences. Let's get into the episodes themselves. So we begin the episode with Usopp freaking out over Sanji being being quote-unquote killed, mistaking his lack of a heartbeat because he was checking for it on the right side of the chest instead of the left side, which is a very cliche joke about looking for a pulse and not finding it because you're looking in the wrong area, but, you know, it's fine. And then, like I mentioned in the differences section, Usopp tries to stand up to NL half-heartedly, but then immediately gets electrocuted and fried as well, knocking out two straw hats now, leaving Nami and Gumful by themselves. The rest of the scene is primarily to serve as a vehicle to explain to us a little bit more about Enel himself, like his goals and motivations specifically. And it turns out he's after the same thing as the Straw Hats, which is the lost city of gold in Shandora, which we learn that is the name of the city. And one thing that stood out to me upon seeing the first image of what Shandora might look like it's pl- pretty clear Oda drew inspiration from another famous city of gold in our own legend and folklore being the legend of the Golden City, El Dorado. And in this image, you can see the the square pyramid-like structure often associated with the Mayan civilization, both being from Central America. He sort of mashed them together to create Shandora. They even sound alike by mashing Shandian and Dorado together, so you get Shandora. Um, We we don't quite know what Enno wants to do with all the gold yet, but it seems like he wants it more for a purpose not so much for its monetary value oh but before we move on one thing i've failed to mention yet is nl's laugh and he continues a long line of oda's ridiculous laughs with his yeah <laughs> and it's probably one of the more tamer ones but it's still funny nonetheless coming out of um nl especially how he draws nl laughing because he's like really over exaggerates this guy with his like head becoming huge and his mouth just massive whenever he laughs like that and it's it's got this like sort of larger than life appearance to it which is pretty which is pretty on brand for all the all the uh the villain laughs or i guess they're not always villains but all the exaggerated ridiculous laughs and his main purpose of coming down to visit was to see gunfall and to say to say goodbye to him i guess because he's now finally completing his goals of whatever he's trying to do with the gold and the upper yard but with that NL leaves, but ominously floating in the foreground of the screen above the Going Merry is what looks like a pair of guys that look an awful lot like Satori. But we'll get to that in a little bit. However, before we get to see what's up with all of that, we come back to the other cliffhanger from the last episode, which was Luffy versus Wiper. And we start by rehashing what we've already seen, which is annoying, but to be fair, we were never supposed to see this scene earlier, so this is actually the correct place to view this portion with Luffy bouncing back wipers, bazooka shots, and we get to see another example of the uniqueness of sky combat with the dials as he turns his bazooka by putting a breath dial into it into a what's called a burn bazooka by utilizing the breath dial and combining with the gas. It allows him to fire like a laser-like blast of flames 
and it's pretty it's pretty hot especially because it comes out blue and so we, we all know blue fire is the hottest or i guess it's one of it's hotter than red fire for sure and so it like just cuts straight through like a tree like a massive tree one of those skypian trees and so it's clearly strong enough and luffy jumping out of the way of that thing i don't know why but that's always been really funny to me because it's like it's almost an expression that we've never really seen him do with those like wide-eyed, almost like rounded um, facial features. But I mean, obviously Luffy isn't trying his all out since he doesn't actually have much ill will towards Wiper as he's more of an obstacle more than, than an antagonist. But Wiper holds his own pretty impressively against Luffy, almost unbelievably so actually. I mean, he has the physical strength to match Luffy's monster-like strength by stopping Luffy's Gomu Gomu no Stomp dead in its tracks, as well as the speed to somewhat keep up with Luffy's volley of attacks. It's kind of crazy to me how they sort of portray Wiper's strength. Like, it's hard to kind of get a gauge of, like, what makes this guy this strong for such a hum- normal human? But I guess, I mean, we don't really take that for granted with Sanji and, and Zoro, so well, maybe he's just super strong. I think my favorite part though is I love how this duel sort of comes to an end with the dual bazooka attacks. I mean both of them known for very famous bazooka attacks and then as they charge at each other both of them yelling bazooka at the same time. I always thought that was that was an opportunity that couldn't be missed and Oda definitely delivered on that so I'm glad we got to see that. Uh, and yeah I really enjoyed this fight. I mean as short as it was it's really well animated and especially that final duel hit on each other was pretty cool to see. Both of them eventually get blasted away by each other's attacks, but Luffy seemingly something happens to him and he fall he's shown falling into a cavern of some sort. But it's pretty obvious and heavily implied that he got swallowed whole by that giant snake from earlier, as it's sort of like slithering in the background, and you see something from the first person view just like lunging at Luffy just before he starts falling into the cavern, so it's pretty safe to say that he was swallowed and he's now falling into that snake's stomach. I'll get into that a little bit more towards the end of this episode. We then see a brief scene where Yama beats up on another one of the Shandian warriors, Gembo, showcasing his abilities and powers, and to sort of build up the tension for his eventual fight with Robin. And he emphasizes here that even without devil fruit powers, with the dials, these people can be pretty threatening, which we've seen with now both with Wiper and Baraham. So throughout these episodes, we kind of jump back and forth with all the Robin scenes. But I'm going to try and talk about most of them here so that I'm not cutting back back and forth. But yeah, later on, we see Robin examining some ruins, but it's interrupted by Yama. And then later on in, in episode 172, we see Robin determining that the ruins of the city of Shandora were from 1100 years ago, and they roughly fell around 800 years ago. And it's here where things get really interesting as she explains that these ruins fall in line with something called the void century area of history, which she implies that there is a missing 100 years worth of history that's unknown to the world, which she's very interested in. Now, the concept of the void century doesn't seem like a big deal here, but trust me, it becomes a very important story element as the series goes on. But for now, one thing you can kind of take away from this is it kind of adds a little bit more to Robin's dream of finding the real Poneglyph and finding the true history. And so you kind of get the sense that she's actually looking for this area of history, this missing 100 years, and this is kind of more specific as to what her real goal is. Now one thing to note is if you're watching the Crunchyroll subs, they translate this as the blank century, 
Which isn't technically wrong. Among most of the English-speaking community, though, it is common to refer to this as the void century, and that's how I'm going to refer to it, and that's how I've always translated it in my head, so I'll be referring to it as such. But while the translation does work, the term kuhaku, which can be translated either way as blank or void, I think it just sounds cooler as the void century than blank century, and it rolls off the tongue better for me. So I think I think as the community has determined, yeah, it should be void century. But you, you're free to call it whatever you'd like. Coming back to the Mary, though, Satori's brother Hotori and Kotori show up to get revenge on Sanji and Usopp for defeating their brother. But with both of them down, it's up to Nami and an injured Gunfall and Pierre to try and fend them off. I feel like Oda's creativity took a day off here as they literally look exactly the same as Satori in terms of design with very little variation, but I'll give him a pass on that one. There's a couple things that stand out here in this scene before the fight actually gets started though as we see, unlike how Nami was always scared and resistant to fighting in the past, especially while in the upper yard around, you know, walking around with Zoro and Robin, but now with no one else to protect her, Nami, like each and every one of the Straw Hats, step up to do everything she can to protect her Nakama. And, you know, I'll never get tired of seeing those traits in, in each and every one of the Coward Trio members. Because as freaked out as they always get, for, for mostly comedic reasons, when it comes down to it, if when they need to, they will step up. And I love seeing that moment each and every time it happens throughout the entire series. And I think I love it especially with Nami because... She is actually really strong, at least mentally, she's really strong, you know, she's very brave and strong, unlike sort of Usopp and maybe even to a lesser extent Chopper, who kind of like mentally break down as well, they're just like constantly freaked out. However, Nami, when she actually decides to be brave, she is pretty badass when it, when it comes down to it, and you know, it's really fun to see that. The other thing that I like about this scene is that you get to see sort of how someone who is used to sky combat approach it as the first thing Gunfall mentions to Nami is to figure out what dials they're using and how they're using it. Similar to how when pirates fight they determine what devil fruit powers they're using. But before that fight actually starts we move on to catching back up with the other cliffhanger thread that was left off in the last episode which was Chopper running into another priest this time Gidat's and I personally love this fight, as I mentioned earlier on in the intro. I mean, it's up there with one of my favorite Chopper fights. Although, sadly, it's because mostly we don't get very many Chopper one-on-one -on -one fights throughout the entire series. Not to disappoint anyone for future viewing. But it's just kind of the sad reality of it. But luckily, we, get, we do get this fight. And the dynamics of this fight are so absurd due to the combination of Chopper freaking out and Gedatsu's weird tendency of carelessness when it comes to like very inherently natural things like like accidentally going white-eyed and on being unable to see, not crossing his arms all the way and even forgetting to actually speak his thoughts to convey them to people around him. It's such a weird villain quirk and honestly, I didn't quite get it. And I still don't get it to this day. I think this is one of the first gags that doesn't really land with me personally in the entire series thus far. Like I don't really find this all that funny and more just silly and stupid. I think what saved this entire fight, though, is that Oda paired him up with Chopper, and seeing Chopper react to all this is pretty damn hilarious. So if that was his intent, then that was genius. But Gedatsu on his own, just seeing those weird quirks just never really did it for me. I do like how this fight starts, though, because in the middle of Gedatsu's sort of villain monologue about the Swamp Ordeal, 
It cuts to a wide shot of Chopper freaking out that Gedatsu is actually the one sinking in his own swamp. But then when Gedatsu starts flying, Chopper's absolutely awestruck at how cool that is, even if this guy is just here trying to kill him. And and I think that's one of like Chopper's really cool or fun quirks as he's always sort of just absolutely mesmerized by anything that looks cool. And I think that's obviously that has a lot to do with his character being pretty much sheltered inside Drum Castle for most of his entire life, not seeing anything about the real world. And being on Drum, like, there's really nothing to see. I mean, I think the most, like, crazy thing that he's ever seen is Dr. Kreha herself and maybe the Lapan bunnies. But, yeah, he's never really seen anything that crazy. And so it, it makes sense that even, at you know, at his age, he's just awestruck by anything and everything, especially all the crazy things that he sees on his journeys with the Straw Hats. So... I think it makes sense for his character, but it's also really fun to see when Chopper just gets crazy, like, awestruck about all these weird things that he sees. However, though, Gedatsu immediately shows just how terrifying his fighting style is when he unleashes his Swamp Cloud Burger, which is a funny name, but then hilariously overshoots Chopper by a mile, and it lands on his own Shinpei, but it's here we see that the cloud is composed of water clouds? that slowly drowns you as you can't grip it since it's a cloud, and the more you struggle, the more it sucks you in like quicksand. That to me is one of the most terrifying ways to die, to be honest. And Chopper being the good doctor, he can't see a person dying without trying to help them, and even while running for his life. However, he may need to get a refresher course on his CPR because the way he performs it on this Shinpei soldier is absolutely ridiculous but it's also pretty funny as he goes into his heavy point and just don't fist slams the guy's chest as he spits out water and somehow he's okay and like he's breathing again the shinpei being saved by chopper decides to switch sides and fight alongside chopper and now with a new ally chopper gets this renewed sense of confidence to fight gedatsu but this is immediately quashed as gedatsu unleashes a super fast punch aided by a jet dial on his elbow and the Shinpei is just instantly taken out by him just slamming against the wall. And, you know, I, this is not bad in the anime, but I feel like in the manga, this punch had a lot more force to it. Like, I don't know, the way I imagined it looking, you know, reading the manga, it's almost like he just like instantly appears in front of the Shinpei and it's just like, bam! But in the uh, the anime, it's a little bit slower, I guess, to, to sort of you can see the action appearing. But I imagined it almost like an instantaneous thing where it's like, get us all of a sudden just behind Chopper and the Shinpei is just like already slammed into the wall. You don't even get to see him fly through the air. And that's how I imagined it. But I mean, it's not bad in the anime. But regardless, it's so fast, even in the anime, to the point where Chopper couldn't even react. And as tense as this moment is supposed to be, I can't help but laugh at how quickly the tide shifts again, with Chopper standing there absolutely shook, standing in the back with his mouth agape, and Gedatsu imposingly posing over him in the foreground of the shot. <laughs> it's pretty crazy. Upon seeing this, Chopper absolutely is terrified and determines he needs to run or else he's going to get killed. But unable to outrun him, he he actually eventually decides that he has to fight and eats a rumble ball immediately while avoiding a couple attacks. But it gets to a point where he has no choice but to take an attack with his guard point, but then is shocked to find that he still takes massive amount of damage even in his guard point. 
But somehow in all of the volley of attacks, his brain point somehow manages to figure out that Gedatsu's feet are his weakness. And it's at this point we get an awesome growth moment for Chopper's character. With his last bit of strength, he resolves to stand and fight. He finally realizes that because he's always so quick to run and hide, everyone always comes to his aid. But if he wants to become a pirate, and a strong pirate, that the one that Hiruku always told him about as a kid, and be someone the others can rely upon, Chopper has to learn to stand and fight even if he's going up against a stronger opponent and is scared. It's here that we finally see that development happening. And it's this development why this will be one of my favorite Chopper fights and favorite Chopper moments of all. As this is probably where we see Chopper go from just the crew's doctor to being a full-on straw hat pirate. And yeah, I am all about that. And yeah, like I said, this is easily one of my favorite Chopper moments in the entire series. And with this new strategy in hand, he manages to remove one of Gedatsu's milky dial shoes and throws Gedatsu off balance while in the air. With this opportunity, Chopper sees an opening to unleash a new move with his arm point called the Cloving Cross or the Kokte Cross, which literally translates to Carving Hoof Cross, where he punches Gedatsu with his hooves joined together at his wrists and make this sort of cross-like indentation, which is a cool upgrade from his Kokte Roseo and, you know, with this fight from Chess Marimo back on drum. And again, I love this little moment where when the fight ends with Chopper freaking out from falling, but then triumphantly lands, screaming out, Now I'm a pirate too! Or, And I mean, this is a huge and awesome moment for Chopper. He just beat a priest on his own. Something that everyone up till now has struggled with. While I admit, Gedatsu is probably the weakest of the four priests, it is still an amazing accomplishment. And with this being one of Chopper's first real one-on-one fight as a straw hat, it's a significant moment for him and I love it. You know, it's like, it's, I wish we had more moments like this for Chopper, but going forward, he just doesn't seem to get as many, which, which sucks because Chopper is a really fun character to see fight, especially when it's done right because of how creative and dynamic his fighting style could be with the rumble ball abilities. And he's also just comedically funny because he sort of skirts that line between being a strong combatant because he's not weak by any means, but he's just mentally scared because of how young he is compared to the rest of the members. And also to cap this fight off, I love the ending to this as Chopper is streaming for Gidets to sing faster and faster and it starts building tension to maybe the fight not, might not be over to, to Gidets just blasting himself instantly down and Chopper's shocked reactions like he really sank but again yeah awesome fight for chopper and i really love this moment moving on we then get a short scene of isa's waiver breaking down and then her being saved by konis and pagaya who happened to be heading towards the going merry and like i mentioned in the different section this happens off screen in the manga and you never actually get to see this moment i do like that this was added into the anime it's just a random development that like Isa is with them for some reason in the manga. So this scene and relationship that develops between Isa and them is an also an important one throughout the whole arc. We know that the Shandians and Skypians have been enemies, but here the younger generation meeting and seeing both sides that aren't, you know, they're not bad people in Isa and Konis, it kind of foreshadows hopefully the peace between the two races of people by the end of all this. And now we get to return to the Going Merry with Hotori and Kotori beating up on an unconscious Usopp and Sanji. And during this fight, it's funny how Hotori and Kotori underestimate Gunfall because really, I also underestimate just how strong Gunfall is. 
like me and the reader, you know, or me as the reader, like I was genuinely surprised at how nimble he is after he gets blasted off the ship and jumps right back on. And then one hit stabs Kotori. You kind of start to understand why this guy was the former god before NL arrived, because not only was he a kind and benevolent ruler, but he's also a very capable leader and combatant. Also, can we acknowledge how utterly hilarious that Nami still refers to Gunfall as the Weird Knight or Hennakishi? <laughs> but as the former god, it's kind of appropriate. As earlier, Nami, you know, demonstrates how god is nothing compared to money and gold. And we see that sort of that nice through line to that joke, however subtle it is, that Nami still, <laughs> he's, she's still disrespecting the former god. <laughs> because it doesn't matter to, the, to her compared to, you know, money and gold. And speaking of Nami, she manages to knock off Hotori with the Cyclone Tempo, and this always surprises and catches me off guard how much force the Cyclone Tempo has. I mean, the way it's portrayed in the anime, at least, it makes it seem like this thing should not have that amount of force behind it. When it, I mean, when it connects, it freaking launches Hotori with the force of an explosion almost, which I know sounds stupid, but it is kind of unbelievable. But they finish off Hotori with Nami using her claim attack much more adeptly and effectively this time, having practiced it more presumably since her encounter with Miss Doublefinger by creating fog. And then she uses Gunfall's impact gauntlet to blow away Hotori's face. I always found this scene weird and funny how in the anime it's made almost unnecessarily sexual. I mean, the way the camera work is done, it's really weird. You see Nami's crotch wrapping around Hotori's face for a good few seconds before she puts the gauntlet into his face. I mean, in the manga, this attack plays out almost exactly the same way, but you don't get this like close-up of her crotch up in his face. It just immediately goes to the panel with the gauntlet already in Hotori's face. I don't know if it's just something that always it's just something that always stood out to me and was definitely a deliberate choice by the anime directors to add this sequence the way it is. It's here you also get an idea of how much recoil an impact dial causes a normal human as Nami is in some considerable pain after its use. But it seems to be somewhat tolerable, but it's kind of crazy to see people like Gunfall and Satori and, and everybody just using these things as if nothing happens. Uh, obviously, the reject dial kind of causes Wiper a bit of damage, but even he's able to hold it straight. And so to see Nami sort of just writhing in pain because of this thing kind of gives you a sense of just how strong these people are. With the pair of enemies taken care of, Gunfall then takes off to go after Enel for fear that his former Divine Squad might be in danger now that Enel has made his move and is ready to move on. With that, Kornis and company finally catch up to the Mary with their trumpet still blaring and startles Nami. And there's a blink and you'll miss it joke where you see Nami using the injured bodies of Sanji and Usopp as shields. And Nami obviously cares for her crew members but still relies on them to, to protect her even though they're unconscious. And it's here we finally get acknowledgement from Nami of just how loud and annoying that trumpeting sound is. But also that is really counterproductive to staying hidden and safe among all the dangers in the forest. And I just want to acknowledge how well the sound designers uh, did here with finding the perfect annoying trumpet sound. Like this is way more obnoxious than anything I had ever imagined in my head when I was reading this section of the manga. It's also here that Nami gets her old waiver fixed up and restored by Page and explained that it has a rare jet dial which gives it way more power than a normal waiver. And so it'll be interesting to see how this is used later on. 
And then to end this episode, we get the last big scene with Kamakiri running into NL. And this scene further establishes how unbeatable NL seems in the face of normal people. But we also see just how arrogant and full of himself he is with his metaphorical and literal god complex as he just willingly lets Kamakiri attack him for five minutes without fighting back. But we as the audience knowing full well that if Eno was actually in any real danger, he'd immediately renege on this deal and start fighting back. And Kamakiri obviously gets taken out by NL's 1 million volt Vari attack. And in the process of this attack, it's conducted through the Milky Road and kills an additional 20 combatants unintentionally. One thing I was worried about after having seen this is at this point, you know, with how powerful NL was, I was kind of worried that this sort of dynamic that we'd only have these sort of elemental type devil fruit users be the only powerful type of enemies that we could ever go up against in order to like create a challenge for Luffy. And I feel like it might get old real fast. I mean, now that we've seen Crocodile and now NL, it's like, are we we ever going to get any different types of enemies here? Obviously, it'll be interesting to see how Oda's creativity matches up to this but i mean i know for sure that he he's not done with with his villain types and so this is not a worry that is actually founded in anything anymore because we know that we have some amazing villains coming up that are not these elemental double fruit users so don't worry about that but that was just a thought that crossed my mind when i first read this section But the episode ends on a clip of Luffy completely out of action and stuck inside this quote-unquote cave, which we all know to be inside the snake. And we see him amazed at finding random treasures acting all oblivious to the madness happening around him, setting up the usual shonen manga trope of taking the main hero out of action to the last minute to make that sort of dramatic intro. It's weird, Oda has actually used this a lot now, yet it never gets tired as he seems to always make everything else going on around the hero so fun. So I never really noticed it to be a problem, but it's definitely a trope that he has used a lot up till now and will use quite a bit going forward. As, you know, this is really the only way to build any tension while giving the other characters some space to shine and creating that sort of hero moment. So, yeah, you know, this is how he accomplishes it here in Skypea. But with that, we bring this podcast episode to a close. So, yeah, with only a fraction of the survivors left, NL is beginning to close in, and it's only a matter of time before he runs into the other Straw Hats. With Robin and Chopper especially already nearing the ruins, they are probably the most in danger, unlike Luffy and Zoro, who are completely lost. So it'll be interesting to see how they get back into the fight. But yeah, we'll have to see you in the next few episodes. If you enjoyed this, send me a like or a comment. And if you want to join me on this journey of rewatching One Piece, please consider subscribing. Check out my Instagram and Twitter account at Podcast if you want to get some updates and see some pictures of my manga collection. Um, just a small spoiler section this time uh, to, cu- to talk about a couple points. But if you don't want to hear about those, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen to my podcast and hope to see you on the next episode. See ya. Alrighty, so spoiler section. Just the just two points that I really wanted to talk about. First of all, Geratsu. Obviously, so he shoots himself down into the clouds 
And he eventually falls down to earth, actually, and he gets his own cover story called Gedetsu's Accidental Blue Sea Life. And through this, you know, a series of sort of weird happenings, he ends up as a business partner of Goro, who happens to be Koza's uncle, and helps him find or found a hot spring resort. Uh, Obviously, we'll get into this cover story when it actually happens. It doesn't happen until... I think further into volume, like the mid 30s, I think. So it'll be a little bit before we actually cover this because there are, I think, two more before Gedetsu's cover story. But yeah, it's interesting how, how he gets his own cover story. And Gedetsu's cover story so far has not actually resurfaced in any way. So it'll be interesting to see if this actually has any kind of relevance on the main story like some of the other ones have. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about was obviously the concept of the Void Century. So this is the first mention we get of the Void Century in the series. And I kind of forgot about this, actually, to be honest. Like, it's become such a big thing in the story, you know, with with Ohara, with Robin's past, with, with it being so related to her dream, and just kind of the overall sense that this is one of the big key pieces to the end of the series you know this is something that the world government is hiding so adamantly that it goes out of its way to wipe out an entire civilization to keep it secret and to this point we don't really have any idea what it is and obviously we'll get into this more as it becomes much more relevant with Water 7 and NES Lobby with Robin's story being more fleshed out and we get to see the past. But yeah, this Void Century concept is already being set up here. And yeah, like I said, it's a major through line through the entire series. Even up till this day, it's still a mystery what this Void Century is, what's contained in it. And there are some people who think that the answer to this actually is the One Piece. Like, the One Piece treasure is the this sort of 100-year missing history. And this is actually an important thing. And, you know, I'm actually kind of inclined to think that it might actually be this, that one the One Piece is not a treasure. But at the same time, we get that scene of Roger and his crew discovering the One Piece, and they just start laughing. So I can't really imagine that this Void Century history the record of this void century is something that they would laugh about. So I don't know. I've kind of changed my tune a little bit, but at the same time, I think it has to be part of it. Otherwise, like where would this, where would this history be aside from maybe in Marijo, like locked up in that weird safe where that big ass straw hat is right now, um, underneath Emu's little throne. But yeah, I it, it is interesting what the Void Century represents, what it is, what it tells them. Like, it's a very big mystery. And it's interesting to see that I forgot that the, it started here. Like, this is where it's first mentioned. So, but yeah, that's pretty much all I wanted to talk about in regards to that here. Because obviously we'll get into more about it as we go on through the series and we learn more about it. But anyways, thank you for listening and I will see you on the next episode. Bye.